guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and you're listening to Specify, the Building Materials Innovation Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to help the entrepreneurs and the innovators who are making a positive difference in the building materials, coatings, and construction industry. Each episode, we'll tap leaders and experts from inside and outside the industry to provide the mental tools, skills, and insights to make an impact. Today's guest is Eric J. Olson, the founder and chief executive officer at Array Digital. Eric and his business partner host a podcast called Journey to 100 Million, in which they document their ups and downs, their lessons learned as they grow their digital agency to 100 million in revenue. Eric, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Tats. I appreciate it. Yeah, so you sh- you shot me a note back uh, last week after we had a quick chat, and <laughs> you told us you told me that we had the same podcast music intro. That, that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have like the full length almost, whereas we've kind of chopped it up and made a shorter version of it. But uh, yeah, clearly we went shopping on the same website where you can where you can buy music. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, easier to to go with the popular ones, I guess. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You, well, you have good taste. I'll put it that way. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so Eric, uh, tell me more about your background. Sure. So let's see. Uh, I've, I've had a, a varying careers, put it that way. I'm really probably on my third career. Right now, I'm, I am running a digital marketing agency and have been doing that for the last several years. Um, before that, my focus was on custom software development. I did that for about 15 years. Wow. So very data intensive applications and APIs. And basically if you needed something done and you were very specific about what you needed or wanted and you couldn't buy it you know, from a program off the shelf, then you would hire me or, or my company. And then before that, believe it or not, I was a civil engineer. So I went to Virginia tech, got my bachelor's of science in civil engineering and, uh, you know, just over the years, different things have interested me. And at certain points, I've taken leaps of faith. So, yeah, from civil engineering to software engineer and now running a digital marketing agency. It actually makes a little more sense if I were to explain some of the transitions. But on the surface, it definitely seems like varying degrees of correlation with my experience. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So explain that civil engineering uh, to sort of, I guess, custom development transition. So that's the big one. That was a big transition for sure. And a pretty big leap of faith because I was walking away from potentially a a legitimate professional career where I had gone to school for this. Uh, So I graduated with civil engineering. I was doing that. I I went into construction project management. So I Mm -hmm. did that for about five or six years. And maybe four or five years into it, I got an idea for a website. So this is back in like the late Mm nineties and everyone that I knew was getting rich off the internet (laughs) before the dot-com bubble burst. And so I got an idea for a website where homeowners could, they could create projects on the website saying, I want my bathroom remodeled or I want my kitchen remodeled or something like that. Yeah. And then contractors could bid on it. Yeah. So think of, think of Angie's list as it is now. But I had the idea before Angie did. And so I started to build it in my spare time 
using the tools at my disposal. So at that time it was Microsoft front page, which mm-hmm. is kind of like Microsoft word, except you can publish to the web. Mm-hmm. And I, I did as much as I could in that tool. But then I got to a point where I, I didn't know how to do a few of the things in that tool. And one of the things in particular was on a page where you register and you put in your password twice. That's so like masked. So you can't see it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how to confirm that the two entries into the password and the password confirmed text box were the same. And so I ended up hiring a freelance developer. Mm-hmm. And I told him my problem and he gave me some code and he sent it over to me and said, just drop it in this file and it'll work. And so when he sent over that code, I, I scrutinized it. I looked at it up and down. And I asked him a whole bunch of questions about how it worked. And then the next thing he did was the same. He gave me some code to fix another problem. And I looked at it and I asked him a bunch of questions. And within about a month, he was doing much less coding and much more coaching of me (laughs) to the point where after a few months, I really didn't need to outsource anything anymore. I was was an ASP programmer, so that's active Mm -hmm. server pages. So this was going back pretty far in the technology stack. Mm -hmm. But I built this whole thing out. I ended up spending about $5,000 with him to get me to the point where I could actually, you know, have a service and I made $30 off of it. (laughs) So yeah, spent 5,000 made 30 bucks. And I think even the $30 that I quote made end quote, I got stiffed on the guy never actually wrote me the check. Oh no. So what I, what I realized that was a really early lesson that if you build it, they may not come and they probably won't come. And this is even in the early days of, of the internet where you could put almost anything up online and you could make some money. Well, I realized that I couldn't, I needed to do more than just build it. And so that really got me thinking about marketing and how you position your company and what you can do, but it's not just about building it. That's important. It's about getting the word out to people and convincing them that you have a good product that they need. And by the way, so once I built that, I had the skills that I needed in order to, if I wanted to transition over to software development full-time, which is what I ended up doing. Mm -hmm. So you got out of that, you started your digital agency. What was that uh, transition like? Yeah. So I, I was doing software development for about 15 years and ended up, I merged with another company. So I was doing kind of like hardcore programming, if you will, like database stuff and kind of like back office kind of work, kind of like geeky programming stuff. And clients that would hire me, they also needed a marketing website. And we didn't do that kind of work. I thought it was kind of beneath us, if you will. (laughs) Right? Because I was like this hardcore programmer. Well, they still needed it. And so I partnered with another company down the street where that's what they did. But it turned out that they were getting not only leads for marketing websites, they were getting leads for custom programming. So Mm. they were getting leads for the kind of work I did, and I was getting leads for the kind of work they did. And we ended up merging after working together on a few clients and projects. And we merged and we renamed and rebranded ourselves to Array Digital. And that was in early 2017. Mm. When we did that, we realized that we wanted to offer some sort of a service so that after we built this thing, whether it was an application or a website, we could offer them then a follow-on service. Yeah. And that follow-on service for a lot of our clients, going back to my the other experience with my freelancing and how I got into programming, 
we knew that companies not only needed websites or applications, they needed to follow on marketing. Mm. So we hired a digital marketing manager and it was just one of many things that we did. But over time, we realized that that was where our passion was. We were getting better and better at that. We were finding out more techniques. And at a certain point, which was in early 2018, we decided we're going to go all in on digital marketing, stop doing the custom software work, and just focus on digital marketing. And that's exactly what we've done since then. Very cool. Now, uh, where did this goal to, to reach 100 million come from? So I am part of a group called the Entrepreneurs Organization, yep. also known as EO. And I was in a full day workshop and they were talking about at the time, at that point in the workshop, they were they said something like, if you can envision where you'll be in the future, what will it be? And what will your life and your company look like? And also keep in mind that most people overestimate what they can accomplish in one year, but they underestimate what they could accomplish in 10 years. And so with that information, and when they ask, where do you want to be in about 10 years? And what's going to, for you, provide satisfaction where you know you're done? At that point, I turned to my business partner and I said, honestly, I'm really just not going to be super thrilled unless we hit a hundred million dollars in revenue. It's this huge goal. I have absolutely no idea how we're going to accomplish it, but other people have done it. So why can't we? Mm -hmm. And at that point we started to talk internally about a journey to a hundred million dollars. And when we decided to start a podcast, it just fit right in. We just want to talk about our journey, all the things that we're learning, the lessons learned, the failures, the things that we change. And so we really go into pretty great detail about some of the things that we're learning and doing here to try to get from where we're at now, which is about 1.8 million to 100 million. So we've got a long, long ways to go. But we also recognize this is going to be a 10-year journey. There's a lot of learning and a lot of work to be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so I know in sort of seeing what you do on Twitter and other social media that you share your learnings, but a lot of times you, you share your failures on there quite openly. Was that easy for you to, to do? That's a great question. At first, I would say it was something that was unnatural. Mm -hmm. You don't naturally decide to let people know about your failures. But what I realized was that internally, internal to myself and then internal to the company as well, we talk about our failures a lot. But it's always within the context, not of we failed and we're no good. It's always in the context of something didn't go the way that we want. What's the lesson to be learned? So why did it go wrong without necessarily placing blame? That's not the goal. The goal is not to say, oh, it was Bob's fault. The goal mm -hmm. is to say, what, what did we do that we should have done better or whatnot? And then what process can we put in place? to make sure that it never happens again. Mm. So a lot of times we are actually aiming so that these problems never happen again. So here, here's an example. Mm -hmm. One of our clients who happens to be my best friend sent me a text message and he said, Eric, I don't think my contact us form is working. I submitted it and I didn't get the email. And then he also said, I probably screwed up. 
And I replied back, ha ha. Yeah, it's probably your fault. And then I immediately went to his website and I submitted the contact us form. And then I texted him again and said, Hey, it's been five minutes. Did you get the email? Nope. Haven't got it, Eric. And so I went to my developer and this is on a Saturday mm-hmm. afternoon or evening. Mm-hmm. I went to the developer. And I said, Hey, I think we got a problem. Can you confirm if this is working or not? Turned out we had made a mistake. We had not properly configured the email server when we switched from his old website to the new website. Mm-hmm. And when we dug into it, we realized that there had been 37 form submittals. Oh, wow. So he had lost out on the opportunity to capitalize on 37 leads in about a one month time frame. Mm. And when I heard that, I was devastated that we had screwed up to the point where it cost our client all that potential work. And even though we gave him all the leads, too much time had passed. He wasn't able to close many of them. Mm-hmm. And so we had a lessons learned meeting in the conference room where we described exactly what happened, why it happened. And then more importantly, what are we going to do so that this never happens again? And the first solution was, you guys are going to have to test every single of our clients contact us forms at least once a month. So literally go in there, submit the form and then call the client and say, did you get it? And if you can't get confirmation from the client, then you have to assume it's broken and, and dig a little bit deeper. But like, we have to know that these forms are working. And we've since put in an automated process, but we still do the manual checking because we, we got to make sure that that works. So even though I talk about a lot of our failures and whatnot, there is always a silver lining, which is we address them head on and hopefully clients and prospective clients will want to be with a company that's gone through that pain and has process in place to make sure it doesn't happen versus a client that hasn't gone through the pain yet or worse, hasn't learned about how they should properly handle these kinds of situations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, definitely, I think sharing them out there definitely sort of holds you accountable as well, right? Because you have to come up with a resolution to back it up. Now, what do you say to people that say that, okay, if you share your successes and failures, what's worked, what's not worked, and then your competitors out there looking at this stuff, what do you say to people that say that that's not a good competitive strategy? I used to be worried about competitors. I used to be very worried about them. But I realize that it's all about execution. And even if you give someone play by play what they should do, they may not, most people won't do it. And then the ones that do it probably won't have the same level of success as, as us because we're the ones that came up with the play by play and we understand why we're doing it. So I'm really, I'm not concerned at all anymore about competition. As a matter of fact, when people in the shop here talk about what our competitors are doing, I'm not interested at all. And it has almost no input into my decisions. Like we don't come up against competitors an awful lot. I mean, it does happen, but I just think that there's enough work out there and we're doing a good enough job. We just, we don't have to worry about that. So I'm not worried at all about someone taking the lessons that that we're putting out there and capitalizing on it themselves for our detriment. I don't think that's the case. I'm perfectly fine if they take those lessons, learn, and they apply them, and they they do better themselves. There's still enough work out there where I'll probably never bump into them in the marketplace. Makes sense. 
So, I mean, you have this uh, big goal, 100 million in revenue. Now, how, how does this sort of big goal for you that you put up front and center relate to your mission and vision? And how do the people that don't have sort of a stake in the organization sort of relate to it or, or sort of get motivated within your company? Great question. So our mission and our vision are directly linked to that goal. So I, I'm looking at it. It's, it's on my wall right in front of me to the left of my computer. Our mission statement is to dominate digital marketing mm-hmm. in Hampton Roads. Hampton Roads is the name that the people in my region call the region, which is the Norfolk, Virginia Beach, Virginia area. So our goal is to hyper-focus on our local region, and we want to be the dominant digital marketing force. Our vision... And, and by the way, we we kind of separate, for us at least, the mission being kind of like a one to three year ambition and the vision being longer mm-hmm. term, like 10 years. So our vision is to grow a $100 million a year digital marketing mm-hmm. powerhouse. Now, we're not saying we're going to be the dominant marketing force because at a national <laughs> level, there's some really big powerhouses that have been doing it for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. But we just want to be one of them. We want to be on top of our game, $100 million within the next 10 years. The second part of your question is, how does that relate to everyone else who's not a shareholder? And that's a great question. And I really struggled with that for a while. But the reality is, if we hit our, if we accomplish our mission and our vision, then we're going to be growing and there's going to be a tremendous opportunity for everybody in the organization, especially the people that came early on. So when it's time to open up another office in another region, as an example, I'm probably going to be tapping one of the people that have been with us for the last three, four, five years and sending them off to run that new office in the new region. Or when we need a new position filled, we're going to be tapping someone that's existing. So there's opportunity to grow in your career, to grow as a leader. There's just lots of opportunity we're going to create. So the vision of a $100 million company is big enough where we can fit everyone else's dreams inside of that. Mm. Very cool. So, you know, there's different ways to segment and you've sort of chosen to segment your, your agency regionally. You can segment through vertical, different verticals or industries. Why did you choose regional, regional as your initial focus? So the idea is that we need to win in our backyard before we go beyond that. If we can't win in our own backyard, then we're going to have a very difficult time going outside of the area. So that's why we picked the local region. Now we do have work and we have clients outside of the area, but what we focus on is is inside of the area, not outside. Mm -hmm. We have segmented a little bit. So as an example, we're really looking to work with B2C companies that have revenue of at least $2 million a year and are five years and older and want to aggressively grow. Mm -hmm. And we've picked those four things because just of experience. We know that if we work with a smaller company, especially one under a million dollars a year, they just don't have the wherewithal to afford the marketing that we think is what's needed to get them growth. And B2B is, is more difficult for us. So maybe it's just the way that 
we're built or our experience or whatnot, but we seem to have much better results with B2C mm. companies mm. than B2B companies. There's other agencies out there that focus only on B2B. That's just not us. Mm. So for whatever reason, we just haven't had quite as much success with B2B and especially not for our entire offering. Mm-hmm. We do have B2B clients, but it's usually a more narrowed focus, like their web presence or their SEO. But advertising in particular has been a challenge with B2B companies, whereas with B2C, it's a lot easier to find the precise audience for a B2C client. Mm, yeah. My experience with the B2B versus B2C is definitely B2B is more of a sales-driven strategy that works quite well. Whereas in B2C, all the strategies tend to have to be marketing-driven to be successful. So the great companies realize that and are willing to invest more into the marketing side of things, which would be digital as well. Yeah, that's, that's my experience as well. When it comes to B2B, it's typically, like you said, sales-driven, which means a sales force. A lot of times there's RFPs involved as well. And those are things that we can't really help but so much on. Uh, certainly RFPs, we don't, we don't do any of those for our clients. And we're not a sales training organization, so we can't really help with the sales force. The only thing that we really can do is get them some attention in places like social media. And then also, once they get the attention of a prospect, they need to be well represented on the internet. Mm. And that's where a website comes in and articles that are pertinent to what they want to sell come in. That's really kind of about it when it comes to B2B. But B2C, we can actually generate a lot of that attention directly with things like Facebook and Google Ads. Yeah. So for digital, just going into more trends, would you ever suggest to a client, like, you know, your approach of sharing what you're doing as a company to reach your goal, uh, showing leadership and being sort of open about successes and failures. Do you suggest that to your clients as an approach that sort of more transparent uh, behind the scenes? Here we are. This is what we're doing day to day. We have not. Mm-hmm. I think it could work for other companies, but it is a very personal decision, <laughs> I guess. Not a lot of people are comfortable with the concept of sharing everything and filming your employees at work and things. You know, a lot of a lot of companies are very protective about what happens inside of their walls and they don't want anything exposed. And they even think that exposing lessons learned is a negative. Not only do you have to expose the fact that you had a problem, but you have to make sure that that goes hand in hand with the solution Mm -hmm. and why you're better because you've learned that lesson. Sometimes, you know, our clients will probably think if I say that I had a problem, then the consumer will just take that and they won't, they won't even wait around to hear about the lesson learned. So it's, it's a different kind of marketing. It works for us. It probably would not work for a lot of our clients. And so no, we don't recommend it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what sort of a uh, key uh, digital sort of marketing trends that do we need to be aware of? So there, there's definitely some trends that are happening here on social media. Obviously, uh, Instagram has had a really good couple of years. And it, it seems like with social media, some of that attention that used to go to Instagram has now shifted. And quite recently, 
to another social media platform called TikTok. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I was yesterday talking to someone who puts out a lot of Facebook and Instagram posts. And I said, Hey, are you on TikTok yet? And he didn't know what it was. <laughs> so there's still a lot of people that have never heard of it, but it is becoming wildly popular. And in particular with the younger demographics, think high school. Yeah. But most of these trends in social media start with a very young demographic. So even Facebook started as a social network for college students, in particular Harvard, and then the colleges, and then younger demographics, and then it aged up very quickly to grandmas. Mm -hmm. Instagram has been going through the exact same thing. It's been aging up. So one of the things that you see a lot of social media is it starts off for the younger audience and then it ages up very quickly. So I would definitely be on the lookout for TikTok. And if you haven't, like if you don't know what I'm talking about when I say TikTok, just go to your app store, search for TikTok, T-I-K-T-O-K, and just download it. You don't have to create an account and you can just see what's going on there. But it is a different kind of social media and it's a different kind of a different way of sharing content. So that's one. The second is voice. Hmm. So I've been following voice for about a year and a half now. In particular, things like the Google Home. Hmm. There's also the Amazon Echo. And the Echo is powered by an AI, artificial intelligence, called Alexa. And it's becoming more and more powerful. And from a marketing standpoint, there are a lot of things that you could do to take advantage of voice and start to get in on this world early on. So one of the things is voice SEO. So SEO, search engine optimization, has always been used to mean how you put words on your web pages so that when someone types in a search term, in Google or another search engine, your web page comes up. Well, these voice engines and platforms, they're going off of a slightly different set of criteria and a different database, if you will. And so like in the early days of the internet, there was a land grab for domain names. Mm-hmm. Well, now there's a land grab for invocation name. So the invocation name is the name that you say in order to start a voice program. Mm. You want to get yours as soon as possible before someone else gets there. So the leading edge brands are moving pretty aggressively into voice. And there's a couple of voice conferences and voice personalities that I follow and it's gaining steam very quickly. Podcasts as well. Podcasts have been around for a long time. And in the last year or two, some switch was flipped and all of a sudden people were starting to listen to podcasts a lot more. We're on one right now, right? So (laughs) you can use your voice to get this information out and to create content, but then you can also take things like the transcription from this conversation and you can create blog posts. You can create social media posts. And so just by talking, you can create a ton of content, not only for voice and for podcasts, but for your more traditional digital marketing platforms. Yeah, makes sense. So uh, you've sort of explained sort of different transitions in your career. Which What was the most uh, sort of significant? What was the, the biggest turning point where you sort of felt like you kind of understand what's going on with this entrepreneurship stuff? 
Well, probably the most difficult business decision I've made so far has been hiring my first employee. Mm. So that was a big deal for me. Yeah, at the time I was coding and it was just me and a laptop basically. And I was working on a big project, but I knew that I needed to hire someone in order to really kind of get this thing going in the right direction. And so I was working on a big project. I was about halfway through and then I got another big project. And all of a sudden I had more work than I could do in, in a normal amount of time. You know, I could have, I could have stretched things out, but I didn't want to do that. It was an opportunity to hire someone. But I wasn't making money on that second project yet because I hadn't really started coding it. And so it was a very precarious period of time where I had to work, but I didn't necessarily have the cash flow and I needed to hire someone. And all of a sudden I was going to be responsible for someone besides myself. And I interviewed, I found someone. And before I pulled the trigger on her, I remember going to my wife and saying, I'm about to hire someone. And just so you know, she is going to get paid every two weeks. I just don't know if there's enough money left over for me. Mm. And so I, I went ahead and it was, I jumped off the cliff and it was just pure faith in myself. I hired her and it worked out great. And what I actually found was that once I doubled the size of the company from one to two people, mm-hmm. magically work came out of the woodwork. <laughs> it was a really odd phenomena. I did not expect to get busier because we had more people. I increased the supply, but what I found was the demand actually increased. May have had something to do with the way I was speaking, the confidence of when I said we versus Eric and you know some made up people or some freelancers. <laughs> they really and a lot of a lot of small companies do that when it's just like the founder or two or three people. Any freelancer who's ever done anything for them in the last five years become part of their company on the about us page, right? We've all done that. It was nice. It was nice when I didn't have to do that anymore. But I really meant it. I really had it was me and someone else. And I think that probably changed the dynamics of the conversation. Maybe the word got out. I don't know, but more work came my way and it, it worked out great. Very cool. So you're a busy guy. What are your top uh, three habits or routines for success? Well, let's see. One of the things I try to do is is pay myself first. Mm -hmm. And and I don't even really mean money. I mean time and and attention. So as an example, at the beginning of this year, I wanted to... I set a goal for myself, which was this crazy goal of running a thousand miles Mm. in the year. And and I, I wasn't much of a runner, actually, when I set this goal. But it was around the holidays of 2018. And I was out of town. And so I was, I just happened to be running. I ran like three days in a row on the treadmill at about three miles each time. And somewhere along the way, I did the math and said, well, if I run three miles a day, every day of the year, that's about a thousand miles. It's actually 1,080 miles. So I was like, okay, well, I can take a couple of days off and I'll hit a thousand. So I, I decided I'm going to run a thousand miles in 2019. But then I very quickly had to figure out how to fit that into my schedule. Mm. And I realized that if I try to do it after work, there's just too many distractions. <laughs> right? uh, I'm married. I've got kids. I've got events sometimes that I go to. But if I do it in the beginning of the day, especially very early, there's never a conflict. So I decided I want to start running in the morning before I go to work, shower at the gym, come to work. And I've done it all year and it's worked out great. So pay yourself first. Mm -hmm. In particular, 
with the things that you feel are important, not necessarily money, but your time. Mm-hmm. A second kind of habit is what's called the do it anyway mentality. <laughs> and it's not something I created. It's there's a podcast called the MSCEO by Andy Priscilla. Yep. And he talks about this, which is do it anyways. Meaning there are times where you just don't feel like doing something. Like you, you've told yourself you created a to-do list and it's four o'clock and you're, you're tired, you're ready to go home or it's Friday afternoon and you still haven't finished your to-do list. The idea is, you know what? Do it anyways. You may not want to do this, but you, you told yourself you're going to keep your promise. So as an example, my podcast, I need to record episodes and we have evergreen content. So I record in batches, mm-hmm. but I tell myself, I'm going to do it on Friday afternoon. When everyone else leaves the office, I'm going to stick around and I'm going to record because no one's here, which is great. But a lot of times I don't want to, but I have to implement to do it anyways mm-hmm. mentality. Yeah. And then the other thing is something I touched on before with the journey to $100 million and how it's going to take 10 years, which is don't underestimate what you can accomplish in the long term. And a lot of people think that where you're going to be in 10 years is basically where you'll be in the next year or two. But you need to think about the compounding effect of success. It's just like with finances and interest, right? It builds on top of itself. And so you really need to start thinking much, much bigger about what you can accomplish in 10 or 20 or 50 years, depending on where you're at in your career and your life. Right? There's probably much bigger things that you can do if you actually put your mind to it. Mm, very nice. So uh, last question, is there anything I uh, should have asked but didn't? Uh, tough question. <laughs> you know what? We covered a lot and I think we are good to go. I appreciate the time with you. Yeah, Eric, it was a lot of fun and I'm sure the listeners learned a lot from it. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone, anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.